You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. As the COVID-19 crisis continues, producers at WERA and Arlington Independent Media are working hard to bring you new programming. We're also pulling some compelling conversations and music from the archives. It's our priority to keep our community strong and local radio plays a part in this effort. We're experimenting with new recording technology and tweaking protocols, so some of the audio will sound a bit different, but I'm looking forward to sharing the wisdom of writers and thought leaders with insights that bring perspective to our world. And of course, I love hearing from you. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. I hope you enjoy today's program, and if you like what you hear, please check out our website at arlingtonindependentmedia.org. I mean, I, I do think that I have a much greater awareness for just the unpredictability and the volatility of life. If I if that message hadn't been internalized, it's definitely being internalized right now. My guest today is journalist and author John Mualam. His new book, This is Chance, was just published by Random House. This is a work of nonfiction. It is the real story of an Alaskan community shattered by disaster and a radio host who helped pull it back together. John, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Your book, This is Chance, is about the 9.2 magnitude earthquake that hit Anchorage, Alaska in 1964. And if I remember correctly, it was late in the afternoon on Good Friday when the earthquake hit. And it's been on record as the most powerful earthquake in American history. So what drew you to this story? And when did you know it would become a book? You know, I, I started this whole process about six years ago. I'm a you know magazine journalist mostly, and uh, I think I must have been running low on ideas at some point of things to write about, and had remembered uh, being in a, a town camping many years earlier uh, in California called Crescent City, and learning that that town had once been shattered by a tsunami. And I thought there was something really compelling just to think about a a small community that was upset by some kind of disruption like that. And so I was sitting at my kitchen table and I just kind of Googled around for things about Crescent City and quickly learned that the reason why it had been shared by the tsunami was because of this uh, enormous earthquake in in Alaska. Mm. So I began reading about that and it wasn't very long before I stumbled upon this character of Jeannie Chance, who was a radio broadcaster in Anchorage at the time and learned a little bit about the incredible work that she'd done that weekend and uh, shortly after finding her, finding out that her um, she had passed away, but that her daughter had all of Jeannie's things in, in her basement, just boxed up 30-something boxes of her, you know, basically every piece of paper she she touched in her life. Um, right. And uh, I just thought, you know, wow, this is, uh, this is uh, the potential to tell a story that might otherwise have been forgotten and really kind of get my hands dirty and some, some interesting material. Even at the beginning stages of research, the family, the Chance family was willing to share their archives and their photographs with you as you were working through the story. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty uncanny experience, honestly. And I, and I had it a few times with, with different people that I, that I tracked down 
where, you know, I called Jan, Jeannie's daughter, more or less, I mean, totally out of the blue and just said, hi, I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm thinking about writing something about the earthquake. And I stumbled across your mother's name and I'm wondering if you have any of her things around, you know, any, any diaries or letters or anything like that. And she said, you know, I've been waiting for someone to, to ask me this. I have all these boxes mm. and it's, it's basically, they were a burden to her. She was given instructions by Jeannie to sort through them and send quote unquote, important things to a university archive in Alaska and couldn't bring herself to do it. Partly, I think, because of the emotion of it, but also in large part, just because it's it's such a hassle and it was such a daunting undertaking. Right. And just so just to clarify, the the woman named Jeannie Chance, who is really the grounding character in this big book, she was a part-time broadcaster at a radio station named KENI. And it's really remarkable to witness her rise to the occasion in catastrophe. She went from being part-time broadcaster to person on the scene. And the other element that kind of intrigued me as I was thinking about Anchorage, Alaska in the 1960s, that radio station and what happened. I, I wondered about her and is from your research, is she typical of the sort of person who moved to Alaska from the lower 48 states during that period of time? Yeah, in some ways, yes. She's her she and her family were were very typical. Um, so the the earthquake in, in nineteen sixty four, it's it's only about five years after statehood and uh, there is, there has been a rush at that point of people following Alaska becoming a state, rushing up to Alaska from all over, not just the lower 48, but from around the world, looking for better opportunities for themselves. A, a lot of people came from Texas, which is where Jeannie and her husband and three kids were, were coming from. And once they got there, you, you know, Jeannie described it as a new world. That was the phrase she used, where you could actually watch uh, a community building itself. There was this spirit of uh, everyone kind of pitching in to, to help one another. Your neighbors would help each other build their houses. People were building their houses incrementally where they'd start with a, you know, a little, getting a little shack up or some kind of cabin and then add to it over time. And that was the, the atmosphere and the scene that she found when they arrived in 1959. And about five years later, you know, Anchorage was on a much more solid footing as a, a place. It had, you know, a 14-story hotel, which was the, the only building even close to that size in town, but it was it was looked right. at as sort of revered as a as a symbol of progress. And they had a J.C. Penney, which was a you know, four-story department building, which felt very normal and American, and everyone was very proud of that. So the, the earthquake really happened at this moment when uh, Anchorage was was still very much aware of its precarious predicament as a as a place that it had made all this progress, but it still hadn't exactly figured out any kind of sustaining economy. There was a sense, as someone told me uh, for for the book, that you know we we weren't all going to pack up and leave, but but you know we might. Right. Uh, and and that worry was really in the back of everyone's mind at, at the time that the quake hit. Well, you described in your words, I think Anchorage in 1964 was a modern day frontier town yearning to be a metropolis. And you mentioned the JCPenney department store, which gets um, is a really vivid scene about um, it coming down in the earthquake, and also an art deco theater that was quite, well, it was quite sophisticated for Anchorage and Alaska at that time. So there was really a sense that it was becoming into its own uh, when this earthquake hit suddenly and with without any warning. Yeah. Yes. I think it was. It was a. 
that was definitely a feeling that was, there was a lot of boosterism or about Anchorage. There was, you know, it was really the only community in Alaska at that time that people from the lower 48 would have even probably deigned to label a city. Right. It, it was, um, right. so it was, it was really at the forefront of Alaska showing itself to the rest of America and saying, you know, here's what, what we could become. And, but at the same time, there was still this very reasonable undercurrent of worry. I think that, you know, it's uh, the boom that had happened after statehood was starting to peter out. You know, th- there wasn't as much building going on. People were sort of looking around and realizing that a lot of the economy was just being propped up by military. Uh, you know, there was the Air Force and Army base in the area. There was oil speculation, which really wasn't paying off yet at that time. There's a man in the book, Frank Brink, who says that as he's watching the, the earth start to shake uh, on March 27th, uh, I immediately started to wonder what will Alaskans do now? And I think it's a different, you know, as, as much as in this moment, I think a lot of Americans are, are wondering that, that too. I think the, the scale of that worry and, and the depth of that worry was a lot more acute uh, in Anchorage that day because there really was this idea that the Alaska as an experiment, you know, might not work out. I suspect that the interviews that you're conducting now might have been a little different had we not been confronted with the worldwide pandemic. And I, it's actually not, in my opinion, terribly fair to ask you to compare the two because an earthquake and a worldwide virus are two very different kinds of threats. But one thing that struck me when I was reading your book, This Is Chance, there is um, this real sense of localism that comes through. And there's an amazing scene when Jeannie Chance receives media calls from all over the world seeking information about the Anchorage earthquake. But she decides to keep her focus on local events. And you mentioned that eventually the outsiders, which were the national media, they begin to show up. So I'm curious, after writing this book, do you have any kind of fresh thoughts about local media responsibility in the community? Or maybe a better way to ask that is, how did KENI, the radio station, view its role in community? Yeah, KENI was, um, you know, it was a really admirable institution and, and had a vision of itself as a member of its community and a folk, you know, a focal point of its community, a place I say place is metaphorically and just airwaves really as a place where Anchorage could come together and learn about itself. They were, you know, the station that was doing a lot of local news. They had a very big, robust news team that would drive around town right. in, this, in this converted camper that they'd converted into a, a mobile broadcasting studio. Uh, they did events in the community. So when the earthquake happened, it made a lot of sense that people would be looking to KENI uh, for some kind of clarity. And just to be very clear, I make this clear in the book, I mean, they, they were not the only radio station in, in Anchorage, and they were not the only radio station uh, doing the work that they did in the, in the wake of the quake. But I was just really struck by the way in which they were doing it. So Jeannie herself wound up broadcasting from inside the police station very shortly after the radio station came back on the air about an hour after the quake. And so she just by her own persistence and, and some luck managed to be in this position where she could really be a voice that was transmitting information from, you know, the, the people quote unquote in charge, uh, the mayor and, and the city government to the entire community over the air. 
And that was everything from just simply stating, you know, we've had a, a giant earthquake. Here's the extent right. of the damage as we know it, uh, to actually directing supplies around the city saying we need diesel fuel to run a generator at the hospital or avoid this street because there's a, a giant uh, chasm in it. Um, and she just took on that role almost immediately and just kept going for the, for the next several days. It is incredible to see the human response, not just because she was a radio broadcaster, but because I think it was in her DNA just to get down there and, and help. One thing you have in the book that I want to ask you about is as Jeannie is assessing the earthquake damage in those first moments, her first response was, well, maybe things aren't so bad. And you refer to a term called normalcy bias, which, as you say, is a tendency of the human imagination to reclose around the disruption and assume, even in the midst of catastrophe, that life is basically normal. And I know in the course of research, you you interviewed and study sociologists' reaction when writing this book. And, you know, even today during this COVID-19 crisis we're having, I see posts on social media from everyone just seeking ways to feel normal. Do you have a sense, are we, are we reacting in a kind of textbook way to catastrophe? Um, because right now being in service to the country and the world is to stay home. It's not to rush outside. It's to, it's, it's almost the inverse of what we see in an earthquake situation. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating question. And I think it's, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. But I think in general, yes, there are a lot of things that are happening now that, that judging from, you know, many decades of social science research about disasters that seem very typical. And I think that normalcy bias, um, I think that's definitely one of them. I mean, I, I can tell you even just in the last month or so, so I live outside Seattle in Washington state where, you know, I think we were sort of one of the first regions of the country to have serious problems with, uh, with COVID-19 and things were, you know, already starting to feel very different here when in a lot of other parts of the country, the pandemic was just kind of an idea or, or a potential right. problem. And I can tell you that, you know, I was supposed to be on this big book tour and, you know, three, four weeks ago, I was calling my, getting on these calls with my publisher or my agent and saying, you know, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and not, this is not a knock against them, but, you know, from their vantage point, they, it seemed most prudent and wise to just kind of take it day by day and, and I think that is a kind of normalcy bias, right? That if the, your immediate surroundings seem undisrupted, that you are not going to start to assume that, it, that it's any different. I think with a lot of things, when, when the disaster is an earthquake, as opposed to a pandemic, the, there's a lot more clarity to what's happening because everything is so immediate and dramatic and obvious and so visual. But yeah, in, in her case, it was, it was a process of seeing you know, one, one building uh, get damaged and think like, wow, they really built that building in, in a crappy way, right? It can't even withstand an earthquake. Right, and right, not understanding right. that, um, you know, if this one building is falling apart, then th there must be lots of more damage or even much worse damage elsewhere in town. Sociologists from the Disaster Research Center, and I think they were from Ohio State University, they came to Anchorage. Were you using their findings to kind of move through part of the story development. And does that research center still exist? 
Yes, the, the Disaster Research Center still exists. Um, it w- it's now at the University of Delaware. So it's, it moved oh, uh, many years ago okay. from Ohio State to the University of Delaware. Yeah, that was a, a real surprise and joy, I think, of this project is that when I started on the book and even when I sold the proposal, I did not understand the degree to which these uh, social scientists were going to be characters in the book, but also uh, how much I would rely on their work and their the interviews they did. So they interviewed um, more than 400 people on the ground in Alaska, many of them within a few days of the earthquake. And then they took uh, several trips back to Alaska to interview more people over the next 18 months. And all of those transcripts are still in the, the DRC archives. Um, I'm told I'm the, the only journalist that's ever been allowed to use those materials. I don't I think maybe others now will be. Uh, maybe I was just the first one to ask for the earthquake archives, or for any for any archives. anything in their collection. Oh so my. they yeah. So they've studied disaster after disaster. I mean, you could um, you know dozens of writers could probably um, you know make their whole careers just hanging out in that archive. Those resources are just invaluable because uh, these are 30, 40, sometimes fifty page transcripts with everyone. You know, just anyone you can imagine, uh, you know, the city manager, but also the city manager's secretary, you know, the um, people in the public works department, ordinary citizens, uh, you know, Jeannie was interviewed. So, uh, and to read these accounts where basically someone has sat down and said on 48 hours after this quake, say, okay, tell me everything that happened when the ground started shaking uh, allowed me to reconstruct those first three days with a resolution that just is, uh, you know, would have otherwise been impossible. Um, you know, I was really actually worried that people would think I was making things up or embellishing them just to kind of give it a more of a narrative uh, momentum or something. But hmm. actually, I found that I, you know, every little detail I could I could draw directly from one of these documents. And it was interesting, too, because I, I of course, tried to track down a lot of these people and see who was still around. And, uh, and when I would go talk to people, I would you know, bring all my notes and documents with me. And, and I found that uh, very understandably, I, they couldn't remember nearly enough to, to help me in, in a lot of cases that, um, you know, I would, I would say, well, you did this and, and you were here at this time. And they would say, okay, sure. You know, it was 54 years ago or whatever. So yeah, those, those documents that the, the disaster research center had, uh, were just absolutely incredible and in a lot of places really make up the heart of the the story. So you're saying you actually took transcripts and found people in Anchorage who perhaps didn't have a line-by-line recollection of what they may have said or thought and you you showed that to them? Sure. I also, um, well, not necessarily transcripts, but no, notes of the trans. Yeah. I mean, or, you know, I had a, there were a lot of moments where I had, uh, I had a lot of audio recordings. Jeannie had saved a lot of reel to reels of earthquake broadcasts. And then she had done her own interviews with people after the quake. So I, I actually was playing some people recordings of themselves, uh, telling their story of the earthquake, you know, and, and it was, it was very, uh, it's, it's a strange thing. I don't still really have the words for it, but to see, uh, you sort of see the sweep of a life in those moments when you're sitting with someone who you have spent days reading about as a 17-year-old kid, and now they're, you know, a, a 60-something-year-old retired teacher. Right. Uh, and, they, and, and they don't remember themselves uh, to the degree to which I think you would expect. That reminds me of something you mentioned in the book. At the time, in 1964, with the radio station being what it was and the ability to get 
programs on television and radio, they thought they were in a real-time information age back then. But the truth is that the documenting, the line-by-line transcript and documentation was so different then than it is today when we can easily just look at everyone's Twitter feed or Facebook posts. That was the sense back then. They thought, well, we're, we're, we're reporting this real time, but it really was so different. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, I, I think that the expectation was still there that, that you could know what happened. You know, so the earthquake happened at, uh, just as the sun was going down on, on Good Friday evening. And, uh, you know, it's several hours later across the lower 48, depending on the time zone. And so it's really happening in the middle of the night in a, in a lot of places. And it really took uh, most of that night. I mean, at least, you know, it wasn't until deep into the night where good, solid reporting about what was happening in Anchorage even began to leak out into the, the press in the lower 48. So there was just a lot of hours where People were wondering, you know, what what the hell happened? They knew something had happened. I mean, even in Seattle, the Space Needle had swayed from the force of the quake, and they were getting little bits and pieces about what happened, but they didn't know how much of it was reliable. A lot of it was wildly inaccurate, uh, and they didn't know how it all fit together. It almost reminds me of, you know, when there's a big event, like an even like an earthquake now, and if you go on Twitter or something, you see all these sporadic details within seconds, right? Yes. Of what happened and... And a lot of it ends up being not true and, and you don't know how it fits together. And that was basically the predicament that um, much of the country was in with respect to the Alaska quake for, for hours and hours and hours. And even within Anchorage itself, there was a feeling of that because people literally just couldn't see. Uh, it, was, it was just too dark to see and there was no electricity. You had people driving around trying to look at things with the headlights of their cars, but there was no cohesive narrative about uh, how bad the the city had just been uh, jumbled, and how many people might be missing or dead. All of that uh, took, uh, you know, hours if not days to to sort through. And the key character, Jeannie Chance, again, she is um, a fascinating character. She was kind of glamorous and um, ahead of her time in many ways, but her life really changed a lot in the years after the earthquake. She didn't. St- remained with the radio station. What did she do and how is she viewed today in Alaska? Yeah, well, I can answer the first question very, very easily. Um, you know, she, she did end up leaving the radio station. Um, she felt like she wasn't really being appreciated there. She was refused a raise after all this and struck out on her own and, and sort of hustled around town uh, doing PR work and all kinds of other things. But it really become almost like a minor celebrity in Anchorage at that point and was soon uh, encouraged to run for office. So after one uh, failed attempt, she was elected to the state legislature in, in Alaska down in Juneau and was uh, served uh, in both houses of, of that for, for throughout the 70s, um, where she just kind of rammed through a lot of progressive legislation for the time and really, I think, became an inspiration to a a lot of younger women, because this was a time when I think there were maybe only two other women in the in the state house. Or, you know, in any case, not very many. And uh, and then she was unseated by a by a kind of new arrival from California. This this guy who a lot of people I talked to compared to Donald Trump actually. Oh wow! Who ran a very dirty campaign, and uh, you know ran against her, ran some pretty vicious uh, ads against Jeannie, and and won her seat. 
so how has she thought of in Alaska now? I mean, I think the truth is, is, is um, she, she really isn't, um, from what I could tell. You know, people that knew her certainly remembered her. And as I was saying before, I, I had the experience a couple of times, not just with her daughter, but calling up, you know, people, finding people she'd worked with or her neighbor and, and them literally saying, I've been waiting for someone to call me who's, who's writing a book about this woman, you know? Right. Well, I guess the question is then, since your book has just been released, what is the reaction to your book in Alaska? I mean, I think it's too soon to say, um, but uh, I do know that the press in Alaska has been very interested in it. And um, I think it would be great if people will remember Jeannie and, and everything she'd done uh, for Alaska, because I think she really saw herself as as someone who is working for the betterment of, of that state and definitely that community in Anchorage. And I think she saw herself as someone that, that should be remembered, frankly. I think that's why she saved all of these things that I found in her, in her boxes because she had always intended to write her own memoir and, and put her life together in that way. Well, there was some serendipitous moment when you came across the earthquake and found this box of archives. I guess this this book was just meant to be in your hands. You said earlier that these natural disasters can can bring out a kind of kindness. I guess just to come at this from a slightly different angle, after writing this book, what, in your opinion, is the most compelling lesson you learned while writing about this disaster? That's a hard question. I mean, it was just my life for so many years. It's hard. it's like saying, what's the thing you've learned in your life? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I will say that I think the experience just spending so long with my mind in these accounts of the quake and and really doing my best to, you know, imagine what it was like based on the, the stuff that, that's been left behind. I mean, I, I do think that I have a much greater awareness for just the unpredictability and the volatility of life. If I if that message hadn't been internalized, it's definitely being internalized right now. But yeah, I think that's, I mean, in some ways, I think it's it's really changed my view of the world or at least exacerbated my <laughs> view that I already had. But it's really hard for me to, to look around at, at anything even before the coronavirus and, and see uh, and, and not see a measure of randomness or provisionalness to a lot of the things that we take for granted. It's an unpredictable time for all of us. Thank you so much, John, for joining the program today. I've, been, I've enjoyed this so much. And the book again is This Is Chance. John, thanks for coming to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 